Well, it seems there's even more to say about loving kindness <laughs> regarding its function. We talked last night a little bit about how it helps fulfill right intention, but it helps with so many factors of the Eightfold Path to fulfill so many factors. It's absolutely critical that it covers so well the right intention. Everything follows from right intention. What does right intention follow from? Right intention follows from right view. And right view is this realization of the nature of suffering and its causes. If you don't understand how suffering and its causes arise, you can't possibly have right intention. And when you understand its nature, then something spontaneously follows from that, that you start to see that it's distorted views of reality that cause suffering types of emotions. And metta is not a suffering type of emotion. It's very easy to understand that metta is a type of consciousness connected with feelings, and consciousness, perceptions, feelings, are all, of course, anicca, impermanent. Metta is not in any conflict with these things. Because metta is unconditional, it's not really about particular conditions at a particular time. Whereas things like romantic love or specific love is about a specific thing at a specific time. So it works well. It's a radiance without conditions towards this changing experience. The question has come up for anybody who thinks about it. You've got these two elements. One is anatta or no self and then loving kindness. And it may occur to you one day, well, who is it that we're loving If there's nobody, if there's no self, who am I radiating loving-kindness to? When I radiate loving-kindness to myself, who am I radiating it to? If there's no self, who am I radiating it to? So if you're a logical type, this is a good one for you. Keep you busy for a while. Basically, it's just that loving-kindness is radiated to the impermanent khandas, the five count is that it's not that nothing exists, it's that the, everything is flowing, moving, and changing. It's not solid. So there's no problem in having loving kindness for that which is flowing, moving, changing. May every moment of that flow, movement, and change be well, happy, peaceful, and safe. There's no contradiction between non self and goodwill. This Flow, you're not indifferent to the flow. This is another area that I talk about a lot. All structures, emotional structures, are not equal in that they're impermanent. They're all impermanent, but that doesn't mean that you have the same kind of neutral relationship to them. You're strongly preferential towards negative things, negative emotions. You're strongly interested in the prevention and elimination of them. And towards positive things, you're strongly interested in the cultivation and maintenance of them and the deepening of them and the creation of them. It's a very creative thing. So you're strongly committed to being 
an artist. And the artwork is, there's some parts that have to go, some to be kept and some to be invented. This is an act of creation. The mind is the maker. You know, it's the first stanza of the Dhammapada, the mind is the maker. Mano Maya. Mind is the creator. So this is an endlessly flowing, beautiful, creative process. And if you understand Dhamma as a kind of a stark indifference to whatever arises, you have missed the boat. It's not a stark indifference to whatever arises. It's a realization of basic truth that all things which arise cease. Fine, good. Now what? When people hear this, you know, everything's changing. Right, and? <laughs> and now? <laughs> Half the story is usually missing in popular ideas of Buddhism. So there's a hypercharged, continuous practice commitment to the beautiful. And now you can catch people's interest. How far can this go? And the Buddhist tradition, since it doesn't concern itself with the existence of God, especially any kind of certainties that somehow God is going to intervene in your life and fix your problems or anything like that, since it's just not, it's not on the table, all that's left is you. You're forced to deal with it. Of course, it's not that you can't benefit from the wisdom and experience and examples of others. You can in many ways, but it's a hugely great invitation. You'll find in theistic structures, there's some terrible misinformation. I was watching this thing about Catholic priests and celibacy, and you know there's a little problem there, right? You've heard about that, right? One of the things they're saying, I was listening to this priest who, he didn't make it. <laughs> he left the priesthood and so forth. And he was talking about celibacy, and he was saying, of course, it's impossible without the help of God. We can't do it ourselves. And it's only because of God that it's possible. And I'm thinking, wrong. Right from the start. Bad start. What he should have been saying is, this is only possible through your personal effort. It is not possible by any other means. Only through your personal effort. And when you get bad information right from the start, that it, it's not about your personal effort, something else is going to do it for you, is in, you're right off on the wrong foot. And as you see, there's a, <laughs> a fabulous failure. <laughs> this is an act of intelligence, understanding, and effort to do these things, to live like that. And if you get the bad information that it's not an act of intelligence, endeavor, and understanding, then you're just given misinformation from the start and it won't be surprising if there's staggering failures in that. <laughs> so Buddhism is giving you this message. Look, whatever possible heightened humanity that you can attain, it's not going to be on your instincts because the impulses of human nature don't go up. They tend to go down. So it's not just some inherited genetic impulses you're not just following your nature. And you are encouraged to say, you know, all things are on the table. Feel free to go in there and interfere 
with your natural tendencies. Just because they're natural doesn't mean that you should just follow them. There's all kinds of things we do that are not natural. We learn and we overcome things, put them aside, and we develop skills. I mean, it's not natural to just be able to do mathematics. You learn it, and sometimes it's a struggle. And a lot of things are counterintuitive as well. All kinds of physical movements and ideas and structures, how a structure is supported is not necessarily intuitive. And you learn from the accumulated knowledge of other humans, and uh, you have to go against the grain sometimes. And this is where great results are produced in that way. So loving kindness is one of those things. It's not intuitive either. You know, the appearance of this unconditional loving kindness doesn't seem to be in human history until at least the time of the Buddha. So this is a systematic practice, cultivation. It's really an art. It's an art. And arts are not without craft to them. So it's a craft as well. And part of craft is, you know, you do hundreds of repetitions as well. And you learn, you get better. I was always interested in reading both fiction and nonfiction. You know, so impressive, the capacities of writing. And you think, oh, how you do it? Just, I know how to write. I know how to write words. I know how to spell even. <laughs> I'm actually a good speller. <laughs> But when you sit down with a blank piece of paper and you try to order things, it's a different thing. And you wonder, how do people, do they just write? And from my music background, I really, people think you just play. No, <laughs> you learn how to play. There's a huge amount of practice involved in this. And actually, you learn how to write as well. It's a strange thing because it's like saying you learn how to think. And in fact, you do it by trying it again and again and again, and you actually get better. And putting stringing sentences together is amazing. It's something you can actually learn. And you can learn emotions. And you have to practice them again and again. And you start to get, it gets quicker and quicker to get to this skillful state. So this is what the Buddha is saying in that preliminary, is this is a skill. One who is skilled in goodness. Cultivate the craft of the heart. The skills, the intelligence of the heart. Do it again and again. Do it imaginatively, and you will find yourself, why is the Buddha saying this? What's this got to do with Anicca Dukkanata, the ultimate truths of existence? It's more like astrophysics, isn't it? <laughs> the entire universe is this collection of atoms, and the atoms have no core to them, and it's whirling and swirling and expanding and contracting, and isn't that the point? No, why would he spend so much time and assistance on this cultivation of loving kindness? It's Absolutely core. It does a lot for the elimination of ignorance and the two products of ignorance, greed and aversion. Whenever you hear a summary of the problem, what's the problem? Greed, hatred, delusion. What's the solution? Wisdom, love, and generosity. That's the opposite of those three things. Loving-kindness, of course, is incompatible with hatred. It's the opposite, right? Non-ill will, just the neutral feeling is good enough. It eliminates anger. But if you want to go farther than that, loving-kindness is the opposite of it. It also prevents 
anger and hostility from feeding ignorance. Because what does feed ignorance? Two things, greed and hatred. (laughs) Are the food of ignorance? What's the food of greed and hatred? Ignorance. (laughs) They have this nice little symbiotic relationship. (laughs) They go in an eternal wheel. They turn reinforcing each other forever. It's the one thing you can't get registered at the patent office is the perpetual motion machine. You haven't tried registering greed, hatred, and delusion because that's the perpetual motion machine. (laughs) It works forever. You never run out of energy with that. (laughs) So we want to undo that, and we can intervene in any point in the process, and the whole thing will start to wobble and change. And so that's why loving kindness, throw it in there a lot, and you'll find that your ignorance starts to weaken and doesn't have the power it used to. Your delusory views of things start to just, you just start to feel different about things. You start to think, you know, maybe that's right. (laughs) I used to think that was wrong, but now I think maybe that's right. Or I used to think that was right, but I don't think so anymore. You know, that's those moments when your thinking is changing. Your views of reality and how it works are changing. And those are mysterious times, aren't they? Why did I hold that view for that long time and not examine that? Why now do I think differently than I did? It's not really an act of will. It's causes that have been put in. So one of the ways of doing this is to, if you want to end up in a different location a few years from now, just keep piling on the loving kindness. And you won't be the same person a couple of years from now. You won't think the same way. You won't make the same choices You won't make the same decisions. You won't speak in the same way. You won't act in the same way. Your relationships to everybody around you will be different. Your relationship to other things like your own mortality and your own worries about your own security and stuff will also have changed. And that's one of the reasons why we cited the five subjects for frequent recollection tonight is that They have a very nice relationship with loving-kindness. The Buddha often gives five, a little handful of teachings for a monk to take to the forest with him, so he hasn't got time to endlessly be instructing monks. He says, okay, monk, you're going off to sitting under that tree, and this is what's going to assail you and what's the issues that you're going to have to deal with, and here's five things that you can... This is your little pack sack, all the necessity. Your Boy Scout stuff is in there, (laughs) the nested pots and stuff. And two of them are loving-kindness and death. And they work nicely together. Loving-kindness is an eradication of ill-will, which will be a great problem for you if you don't have tools to deal with that. That's what will drive you out of the forest. You won't live peacefully under that tree. You won't find bliss. You won't. You'll find that you're deeply annoyed by the croaking of frogs, is what you'll find out. (laughs) And when it rains, you'll be... Why me? Why me? <laughs> and when you don't get the right food, you know, think, why? What are people, what are they, idiots or something? You, know? <laughs> you will harass yourself out of there if you don't find loving kindness. You need that. And you also need to recall that, you know, there's no certainty about how long you're going to live. And when you come close to that, you see people who have near-death experiences. You see 
the heart changes, the attitude changes. And so we need to actually work with these two things. We have to recognize our own fragility, our own vulnerability, our own imminent mortality, and the mortality of everybody around us, those we love and are close to. We cannot protect them. When we get in touch with that thing, we humanize ourselves. We open the heart. We're in touch with the true nature of reality. There's no safety here. There's only the wish for safety. And it's all that we really want. So we have to learn how to abide in some sort of security. And that is that we can't do it by manipulating the world. We can only do it with these emotions. The emotion provides you with safety. It's the feeling of safety is all you can ever have. And it's truly an unshakable type of security and safety if you cultivate it deeply. And the more you reflect on the absolute certainty of death and the absolute uncertainty of when, the more it connects with this deep emotion of forgiveness, of goodwill. You cannot get lost in the little things, the little annoyances and so forth. These things just fall away as meaningless trivia. And now you're on to the big picture. This is how the connection between these reflections of how easily we can lose our health and all kinds of things. I just gave the talk in Kamloops and one of our great friends there, some of you know him, Brent. He was at work yesterday. He's a guy in his 40s. He said, I had a stroke yesterday. I couldn't speak. I didn't know how to find words. (laughs) Just like that. It was transient, this little clot that goes through the brain, and sometimes it sticks and sometimes it doesn't. But it just interrupted his whole capacity to find words or articulate anything or speak and everything. It was like that, right out of the blue. Today, he's there at the thing, helping set up and everything, perfectly lucid, speaking. It's that fast these things happen. And he said, you know, in the midst of it, The practice came right to me. I didn't panic. I wasn't lost. The practice was there for me. And it's a beautiful thing. I couldn't find the words, but the Dhamma was like, this is what they're talking about. This is what I'm practicing for. Here it is. (laughs) Yeah, there's an instant realization. It's there. If you practice, it's there. So this is fulfilling so many aspects of the practice. The deep synchronization of loving-kindness with all kinds of aspects of the path. This is why the Buddha dwells on that as the second most important realization in the universe. Second most. And the most meritorious experience is a finger snap of loving-kindness, a few seconds of loving-kindness, an experience of loving-kindness. There's only one other experience that tops that, and that is insight into impermanence. And it tops it, but they're not competing with each other. They're not displacing each other. They are supportive of each other. The reason why Anicca is ultimately the highest of the values is that it's liberation itself. There's no reason to bypass the cultivation of loving-kindness since there's endless 
the positive benefits which flow out of it. If you could just get it for a, a few seconds, repercussions are unimagined. They're actually incalculable. They go out past repercussions of thousands or millions. You cannot calculate the results of that. This is only a brief moment of genuine, unconditional loving-kindness. And that's going to support your progress on the path in so many ways. And it deals with the most pernicious of the defilements, and that is anger, hatred. That's the worst. So these things all fit together quite beautifully. And uh, one can do the reflections. And actually, it might be good to do loving-kindness first before you go through I'm of the nature to get ill, I'm of the nature to age, I'm of the nature to die, I will lose everything, and ultimately I'm responsible for my karma. Everything I do, I'm made of everything I do. Considering this and how dangerous it is to make yourself out of things like anger, how deeply dangerous that is, and how inevitably you are constructed from your emotional functions, how important it is to get this loving-kindness and develop it and keep it, because you're going to be made out of that. I am the owner. I am made. I am the inheritor. This is my inheritance. I'm constructing my life out of this. You want to use good materials if you're going to construct your life. And this is the invitation. And you have to make it available to yourself without reservations. You can't wait until you deserve it. The Buddha never asked anybody to wait until they deserve loving-kindness. It's now. If you have to deserve it, it's not loving-kindness. It's unconditional, therefore no strings attached. Do it quick. Do it often. Sustain it. Dwell in it. And that's your inheritance. That's what supports your life, that is now constructing your life. And as you do this and everything, of course, naturally, you will have an effect on others. And if it comes in language, you will be also encouraging others to do these. And you will be explaining as well, because so many people have so many conditions attached to loving kindness. They refuse to practice it for themselves until they deserve it. And you may have the opportunity to explain to people and say, that's not how it works, dear. <laughs> you must do it now, when you don't deserve it. <laughs> That's the best time. <laughs> so this is how this loving-kindness interweaves with all of these basic Dhamma themes. And it cannot be separated or neglected or put to the side, or it's not a side effect. It's interwoven and fulfills so many aspects of the path, including right intention, right speech. I mean, if you have a lot of loving-kindness, how are you going to make a problem with right speech? It's almost automatic. You're going to speak well, properly. Right action, it cancels killing, stealing, and it cancels also harm to anybody in any form. So also sexual misconduct. It makes you much less likely to need to drink. <laughs> Why do you need to drink? Because <laughs> it feels bad. It's one of the sublime drugs in itself, loving kindness. Nothing really matches it. 
And of course, there's a whole theory, and I spent years and years and years reading about this, thinking about this, what is the root cause of addiction, and so forth. And quite often, it's maybe all the time, it is the absence of self-produced drugs. (laughs) You have a drug which you self-produce. It's called loving-kindness. And when it's missing, it's a painful experience. And so you have to find symptomatic medicines for that. But when it's present, the need for these secondary medicines falls away. Right livelihood, of course, one who has loving kindness is not going to work in a slaughterhouse chopping the heads off of chickens. Or, you know, it's just not going to happen, is it? And then uh, right effort comes up. And how does it fulfill right effort? Of course, the unwholesome aspects which you are to prevent and remove. Loving kindness easily takes care of that. The wholesome ones which you are to develop and sustain. Loving kindness is one of those. Right mindfulness. What is the purpose of right mindfulness? Again and again, they repeat, just for the purpose of overcoming covetousness and grief for the world. Well, loving kindness overcomes covetousness and grief for the world. And then samadhi. The hindrances have been suppressed. How? Well, one good way is loving kindness. You can enter samadhi through loving kindness in which joy and pleasure of the body is present with thinking and contemplation going on, which is what I've been talking about all this week, is to spend time creating the story which allows you to enter loving kindness. That is vitaka and vichara, applied and sustained thought processes, bringing the emotion of loving kindness into existence, accompanied by joy and ease of body. So these are all sustaining types of practices. And after you get them, once you do manage to spend time telling the right stories, you can let go of the story and just walk around with the feeling, the afterglow of loving kindness can persist indefinitely, certainly for a few hours or days. You don't have to be thinking about it all the time. Once you get the feeling, it's reinforcing itself. It's something you just stare at and enjoy. So like a mother and her baby. They don't have to talk much. (laughs) They just enjoy looking at each other, you know. So this is the, uh, the Swiss knife of skillful emotions, loving kindness. It has all kinds of ways of opening cans and... (laughs) I just thought of that, by the way. Swiss knife. (laughs) It's a multi-tool. It's a... What do they call that? The the Leatherman. (laughs) Loving kindness is the Leatherman of the uh, wholesome emotions. (laughs) This happens to be Mother's Day. Did everybody know that? It's Mother's Day. So I'm going to end this with a little story about a mother. So this mother, she's from a country where a big war has happened. And uh, there's no future there. And she has to get out. Now, she has a child. So mother and child. And this child is only three years old. A little daughter. Now, they have to get out of this dangerous, dangerous place on a boat the only way to get out on the boat 
because a lot of people want to get out on the boat. It's like crowd in to any old boat and you have no idea whether that boat floats on the ocean or not. And you have to head out onto the vast ocean in a tiny boat with too many people on it. It's only after you get out there that you find out it's not meant for oceans. It's meant for rivers, <laughs> this boat. <laughs> too late, especially when the hurricane comes up. It's too late. And the vast waves come up 30 feet high and the boat goes way up the wave and you think this time we're done for and then it goes sliding down the other side. Amazingly, you're still alive. Then it goes up the next wave to the top and comes down and amazingly, you're still alive. Now, what are you going to do as a mother with a child? Of course, the mother is going to say, I can't afford to freak out here. I'm going to just tell my daughter, we're going to be all right, safe. This is what mothers do. Even though you think, we can die any time. wonder what it feels like to drown. <laughs> and it goes on all night long, all through the night. Not a wink of sleep, not a possibility of it. In the morning, they wake up. And they're alive. But where are they? They're close to some sort of land, and it might be the best thing to swim for it. But on the other hand, it might not be the best thing to swim for it. But there's only one choice. So she, uh, now what are you going to do with a three-year-old? Unfortunately, the mother can swim, and it's the ocean. And they happen to also be near a oil platform in the ocean, an oil drilling platform. So she straps the three-year-old onto her back with it. All she has is a, like a, a cloth, a shawl. Straps the three-year-old onto her back, and away they go into the ocean. There's currents in the ocean, and you realize it's too strong. Nobody's going to get out. The oil workers see these boat people in the ocean there, and they say, they make an announcement, they call on, there's local fishermen, they ask them to come out and pick them up in their boats. But the uh, fishermen are kind of uh, pirates, actually. <laughs> so what they're really after is your watches and any kind of money that you have on you, and who knows where they're going to dump you afterwards. It's a realization, it would be nice to get in a boat, but... It might be worse than drowning. So you're floating around, and then finally these oil worker guys drop a net over the side, and, and like fish pull up 20 people in a net up onto the platform in a big net. <laughs> and now the charming fellows at least hose you off, get the salt water off you. You can imagine what the mother and the little, you know, thinking about it as a hero, like you're swimming and struggling against this, but... You got a kid on your back. <laughs> How are you going to do it? This is truly being a mother. And then, yeah, they survive. And then eventually they get shipped off to a camp in Malaysia. Who knows where you're going? Then you have to wait there with the little child and you have to do the best you can and play with them and make the best of it because you have no time to be sad. You got a kid. And then you have to wait. Where's my fate? Well, it turns out it's the United States. Now, you don't speak a word of English. <laughs> You're going to land there one day with a three-year-old daughter 
and no English. But then you realize, well, I got to manage here. I got to make a living. I got to do something. So you get trained. Now, since you don't speak English, the training is not going to be as a, you know, announcer at a <laughs> hockey game or something. <laughs> what are you going to do? You're going to have to deal with numbers. You're going to have to become an accountant. <laughs> now, whether you like it or not, usually you can make a living at it. So you do that. You struggle. You go to night school. Against all odds, you learn and you make a living and you raise your daughter. And then one day, your daughter gets to be a teenager. Now, what are you going to do for your daughter then? Well, you're going to take all your money and send her to Yale. Really expensive first-class university, because that's what moms do. <laughs> and never mind that it costs you an arm and a leg <laughs> and that you've been sweating for years for this. This is the child you strapped to your back and swam through the ocean with. And then your daughter finishes at Yale, and she's good, and she grows up, and you manage to survive. And that's what—that's a good story for Mother's Day, isn't it? Now, that mother happens to be here in a room with us, Cecilia. That's her story, and that was the story she told me in the interview. So I thought I'd share that with you because it's such a good story <laughs> and such a loving-kindness story, and it's Mother's Day as well. <laughs> So I hope that her daughter hears this story on the tape. So it's not going to just stop here, is it? The story goes out and out and out. And it shows you this is why the Buddha uses, as a mother loves and protects her child, her only child. So you should cultivate that love. That's magnificent love. It puts your own everything to the side. You're fearless. You go. You do what you have to do. <laughs> it's a beautiful high emotion. So we can be inspired and learn from that. And the Buddha is brilliant because he realizes he can see to the end of the universe. He knows the universe is collapsing. Going. He says, by the way, so... In all the world, the best one is this loving kindness between the mother and the child. You try to aspire to that. You know? <laughs> so I leave this for your reflection and hopefully your inspiration tonight on Mother's Day.